Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, we find out more about an iconic catalog that had a lasting impact on fashion, masculinity, and sexuality in the US. Plus, we learn how to write with style. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show talking about a catalog that had an everlasting impact in the US, from fashion to the idea of masculinity. International Mail was much more than just a clothes catalog. Found by Jean Burkhardt, the catalog transformed men's fashion into something trendsetting. A new documentary celebrated. It's called All Men. The International Male Story. I had the pleasure to speak with the directors and producers of the film, Jesse Finley-Reed and Brian Darling. Once upon a time, a small band of outsiders formed an unlikely family, and together they created something that would change the way men would look at themselves and how the world would look at them. When you say International Male, I get very excited. Was Victoria's Secret for men. 20 pages of just men in their underwear. It made me feel like, whoa. International Mail was this sort of boundary pushing men's mail order fashion catalog and subsequently a few stores that opened that existed between the mid 1970s through the early aughts. It was the vision of Gene Burkhardt and a team of people who really saw a need for there to be a greater range of men's fashion available in the United States. He had had the fortune of living abroad for a decade, and he sort of saw men much more sort of expressive with their fashion. So he and the team of, of this family that we discovered along the way created and realized this new vision for men where they weren't so limited, where they could wear you know, peach scoop neck tank tops and, and ruffled shirts. And it could be uh, sort of people were given permission to imagine themselves in it. In the same way that, that everyone was allowed to imagine themselves, I think particularly for me and I think for many gay men of my generation, it was a chance to see men in a way that I had never seen them before and in a way that was also not threatening. They were international, they were mysterious, they were sexy, they were, but it didn't say gay. It didn't say gay the same way the Pet Shop Boys didn't say gay or Elton John didn't say gay. And there was something coded about all these things that I was like, why was I attracted to all these things? And I think that I think that we look, especially in the analog world at that time, for anything that we can sort of relate to or feels feels like us or feels connected to us. And that's how I felt about International Mail. I didn't know how it came to my house. I thought at one point the jocks from school who teased me had sent it to me as a joke because I heard them doing this with other people and with other things. But I didn't care because it was this window into an imaginary world at a time when 
a lot of the representation on gay men specifically were dealing with HIV AIDS. Not that I thought of the two at that time together, but I think it's also what made it so special to me. Brian, what brought you to the project, uh, Dan? What's your, I, I know you know Jesse for a few years now as well, but tell us what made you interested in such a story. So Jesse and I had been working on another film at the time about growing up in the age of AIDS and the traumatic experiences that held for youth coming to terms with their sexuality at the time. And I had come off of a movie called Seed Money, the Chuck Holmes story that I edited, which was about the gay porn empire of Falcon Video and how its money had been used to help fund the gay rights campaign and people like Bill Clinton's presidential campaign, which, you know, overall, I was really interested in, in sort of gay and queer history. And when Jesse showed me these catalogs, it was amazing to me, just the images themselves, the clothing, you know, they're again, in a way it's coded. It's also what you project onto it, you know, like straight men project a different type of image or context onto it than gay men do. And women also projected and lived in, in those worlds as well. I mean, they were the largest buyer of the clothes overall for their men which we actually didn't know at the time. That was one of the things that we uncovered in the process of, of making this documentary. But yeah, I mean, just the initial impression to me was, wow, you know, these images are so storytelling. There's such narrative built into these images that unlike anything I had seen before, you know, in a catalog, maybe editorials and magazines. And so we thought it would be fun at the time because of its, I don't want to say its impact, but its special connection that gay men had to it because it was so, I guess you could say it was so critical or so highly involved in the formation of their identities when they were young and realizing that they were gay or different. And so initially it was to make this short film that would be a fun film looking at how gay men connected with it and how it was something that was a sexual awakening for them. And very quickly, as we started delving into it, and, and especially after our first interviews, we realized that this was a much bigger film that affected culture and society during this time in, in which male sexuality was exploding and also becoming a commodity in America. And also, I think one thing that I got from the film and, and International Mayo, and Jesse, I know we're talking about analog. I mean, it's the importance of the catalog in general. I mean, I don't, I don't know, especially, you know, in, in the mid-70s when, when this catalog was created. So tell us a bit more. I mean, because it, it was a physical product, of course, and I think the last one was in 2007. So tell us more about, was it, is this also about the importance of the catalog? I mean... I think that the why it sort of stands and why it's so important, it's interesting. We were talking in an interview yesterday and he kept referring to it as an archive, as this sort of history. And he, he was using the word archive in a much more liberal way than, than I've ever thought of the word, but in a way that's very cool. I think because this catalog was such an outlier, because it came to the comfort of your own home and your own mailbox, and because it showed people something that wasn't necessarily available at their local store. 
I'm talking specifically about the United States broadly, not urban centers like New York or Los Angeles. You know, people in the suburbs, people in the country, it gave them the freedom to sort of see not only these sort of boundary pushing clothes or clothes they might have seen on Miami Vice or other television shows at the time, but it was a chance for them to purchase them. And something we've talked a lot about sort of in interviews is how the underdeer catalog, which was the sort of more under it, you know, or you can wear, you can sort of express yourself through these clothes, perhaps in just the comfort of your own home or your most, you know, a small community around you. And I think it was sort of special because of that. We were limited in the analog world to what we had in front of us whether it was the television, a movie, a magazine, or the department store. And here is a thing saying, you can be a lot more than all these things too. Or you can wear, you know, that white suit that Don Johnson was wearing with the slingback sandals. And you can wear it in, you know, Duluth, Indiana or wherever. (laughs) Duluth, Iowa. I'm not sure where Duluth is. (laughs) I I love the Indiana Jones edition from 1993, I believe. Yeah, that was quite totally. Who Uh, doesn't want to be Indiana Jones sometimes? (laughs) Just to add quickly to that, I think, you know, when you think about this, the power, in one way, the catalog itself in some ways is almost more important than the clothes. I mean, they, they go together, absolutely. But because this catalog was going, you know, eventually to millions of men or just millions of people really around the the country and around the world unsolicited. You know, there were people that ordered the catalog to get it, but a lot of people, this just came to their homes. And I think to get that sent into your homes at a time when, again, you have, you know, what you're taking in is extremely limited to broadcast television, cable television, again, movies, you know, magazines. It's a very controlled and a very expensive means in which to to get these things out to people and for people to take them to take these images and stories in. And so when you have this catalog coming in millions and it shows men in a way that's very different and in a way very open because it doesn't tell you how to perceive the men, right? It, it's in a way it's allowing you to project yourself into these pages and decide what it is you're getting from them. And I think that's where its power lies. Yeah, and to build just a little more off that, because I think it's so important, is this idea of permission, this ability to sort of have a gaze, like whether it's a straight male gaze, straight female gaze, the gay gaze, to sort of project onto these people, these models, these catalog pages, the sort of life or fantasy life you want to have. I think that this was really the brilliance of the catalog was, you know, if you look at a lot of catalogs around this time, especially men's catalogs, it's shot in the studio on a like a background and it's like underwear, suits, whatever. Still some big box retailers do it this way. But Gene really wanted to tell a story through the copywriting, through the images, through the locations. Sometimes they actually were in these locations of like Southern Spain and, and, you know, Taos, New Mexico. And other times they were just in San Diego and they found a location that could look like Spain or, or Taos, New Mexico. And so it was really 
creating this whole story with these models, it of course brings up the conflict because here are these hyper-masculine men in not so masculine clothes, as Carson Kressland says. But that was the brilliant strategy where it's like, oh, if this, this famous model can be wearing this and he's straight, like, why can't I? Here was a new world that we were visually sending out to America. It was really masculine guys in pretty not masculine outfits. You look at these guys and you're like, how were they made? And also a question for you, Brian. How was it to get in touch with, of course, the founder, Gene Burkhardt, and the former members of the staff of International Mail? How did they receive the idea that you guys wanted to make a film about it? Were they very welcome about it? Many were. Yeah, I mean, many of the original staff were extremely excited and enormously helpful and just really wanted to participate and connect us up with people like Maureen Dalton-Wolf, who connected us with models. She was, you know, an art director. And then Dennis Morey, who was a senior art director. He really got the ball rolling for us and connecting us with other people. Gene was back and forth with being interested. He was interested at first, but initially the idea was to be this short film that showed how it was really fun and connected with gay men. And this wasn't the story he was interested in telling. And so he basically turned us down. And with him turned down, that meant Gloria was also not going to participate without Gene. So we worked on this for three years continually as we refined the film, which obviously grew and we were like, okay, this is much bigger. You know, the story we're telling is much bigger. It's not limited or, or just focused on the gay male experience. And so we would try over the years and, you know, we had heard at one point that Gene had gotten sick and then recovered and we reached out again and we tried, but it just never worked. And I think also Gene really wanted to control his story. He had always talked about making a book. And various people had approached him over the years. And I think part of when you give your story to someone else, when you tell your story, you're giving your story and control of your story to that other person or people. And Gene was very much about being in control. I mean, that is what his catalog was. It was, you know, he was in control of that catalog, creatively speaking, and so once we teamed up with Peter Jones and his production company, then things changed. And Peter had a lot of experience having done all of the shows and movies he had done for PBS documentaries. And he was able to connect with Gene and through his own history and his work. And Gene agreed and brought Gloria on. And at that point, once Gene had agreed, I mean, Gene was a hundred percent. It like just flipped. He would show us things, give us things. We were talking to Gene, you know, as a team, we were talking to Gene constantly, almost weekly, just phone calls and catching up and, you know, until he passed away. We were very, very fortunate to get that interview because shortly thereafter, he began to decline. But he was just an absolute amazing person. So warm, so welcoming. And, you know, I'll let Jesse speak just quickly here to his experience at the end. After we had shot the interview, they had a private moment. 
Yeah, it was it was incredible because, as Brian said, he was sort of this visionary guy. He had this passion, and throughout his tenure as the creative behind this, he often dealt with the sort of ghettoization of the catalog. It's a gay catalog. It's a this. It's a that. And really, that that wasn't the case. That was just sort of what we, as a culture, were putting on the catalog's shoulders. So. You know, in retrospect, it makes complete sense, his resistance. I will say, though, I'm forever grateful to the experience of having Gene. And I think one of the most beautiful things I learned about while making a documentary film is that people really entrust you with the story. You sort of shepherd the story from them through you into this film. And this process of getting to know Gene and also pushing Gene on some difficult stuff like about AIDS and about why he sold the company, et cetera. In this meeting, the last time I ever saw him, we went out to lunch and Peter and Gene's partner ended up going to the men's room and Gene and I were sitting together and Gene told me, he's like, I'm so thankful I did this. You made me realize so much about this. And here I am sitting there thinking that with the documentary hat on my head too, like, oh my God, this isn't in the film. This is just this private moment with me where something really profound happened for him in this process. And I was so thankful for him at the end of his life to see it that way. Because of course, by sharing your story, you know, you put yourself open to criticisms, to interpretations, to all these things. And so I was very thankful. It's very bittersweet to me that Gene never saw the final film. I, w- I wish just... they'd come back with with International Mail, but I guess without Gene, I mean, he's one of those people so associated with it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has, International Mail has different histories, but yeah, that was something he always talked about doing, actually. He's it's like, so he's in, like on the edge of 90. He's like, let's start it up again, you know? And it's like, he had that sort of entrepreneurial spirit, like this very, I don't know, American. Well, he was something. an inventor, you know, yeah, and a creator. He, he invented things after International yeah. Mail. You know, I mean, he was really fascinating. He was not interested in business. And I know we, we hit this several times in the film, but legitimately... He had ideas. He just liked making ideas happen and come to life. Whoever was the person who started International Mail got to live out his greatest visual fantasies. It opened the door for a lot of men to be free. Who would have ever known a little catalog company could have such a massive influence on the male identity? Thank you, Jesse and Brian. And All Man, the international mail story, is out now and available to stream on all major platforms. And now I had the pleasure to welcome in studio Lane Green, the economist's language colonist. He also had the task to rewrite a classic economist book, Writing with Style, updating it for the 21st century. Green's Writing with Style is a complete guide on how to write with flair and engage your audience through tried and tested techniques. And Green also speaks nine languages. Let's hear it from him. 
It's not an entire recapitulation of the style. We didn't change so much of how we think about writing. And most of the rules and the guidelines that we give writers have remained the same. But the previous guide went through 12 different editions. And this is kind of starting over. How would we write it if we wrote a brand new book today? That was my brief from my boss. And that's what we've decided to do to kind of repackage it for, you know, 2023. And that is hopefully what we've achieved. But the style of The Economist is that of a 180-year-old British publication that is read by people all around the world, a lot of whom are not first language English speakers. So the old rules of kind of clarity, using concrete words that everybody knows, really nice and simple grammar, and not using too much jargon or technical terminology, all of that has been our touchstone for many, many years. And that carries directly through into the new guide, even though it's been kind of repackaged in how we talk about it. I find it so interesting because you are American and The Economist is a British publication and I think the English is, you know, it has to be kind of British English, I presume, the title. How how is that for you? I know you speak nine languages, you're very uh, knowledgeable, but is it interesting being American? Sometimes you have to control yourself. Oh, I can't use that. That's an American expression or or grammar. Absolutely. I've actually spent about uh, eight years of my working life in Britain. I spent two years studying and six years working in London. But I've been at The Economist for 23 years, so to some extent it's kind of sunk into my American bones a little bit, and I write many things in British style more naturally than I do in American style these days. But I still am kind of an outsider to British English, and I think that in a way is a good thing because it puts me on guard myself. I still learn something new almost every few weeks about a, an Americanism that I didn't know was an Americanism. A colleague will highlight something to me and say, we actually say this slightly differently. And so I'm constantly picking up new British things, even after all these years at The Economist and in Britain. And part of the fun of my job is that I'm always learning. There's no you know one day where you've figured everything out and you are now sort of style God. It doesn't work that way. And that's the fun part of the job if you're kind of, a, if you if you like to keep learning, like I think I do. And I'm curious, personally, I believe you speak nine languages, right? And I know you're based in Spain, so I presume Spanish is one of them. That's right. English. Yep. Can, can you tell us what are the others? Sure. Um, well, in, in sort of rough order of how well I speak them, I'd say Spanish, Danish, Portuguese, German, French, Italian, Arabic, and Russian. And as you get to the end, you get some really hard ones, Arabic and Russian. And I haven't lived in those countries, and I haven't spent a lot of time practicing like I have in Spain, where I live. And I've spent some time in Brazil, and my wife is Danish. And so I have a lot of time with those languages. They kind of sunk deep. And the other ones I've studied really extensively, and I know them quite well, sort of explicitly. But if we had to have this conversation in Russian, I would definitely struggle more than I would in Portuguese or Danish, for example. I loved the introduction for the book as well, which because, I mean, that's what The Economist does, right? Uh, I think there were a few kind of uh, originality, clarity, concision, honesty, humility, and lucidity. But I love what you said before, that The Economist, I think it's produced aimed at an international audience. So everything has to be quite clear. So it's not three paragraphs, you know, to explain a story. I think they're quite direct. I think that's the whole point of The Economist, right? That's right. The style is actually quite compressed in some ways, because style, you know, our, our pages are, are at a premium, often a very complex topic will have to make it into 550 or 650 words. And that means that as a writer, you have to pick absolutely every word with care. And everything that can go will typically have to go at the editing stage. You file a little bit long, and then you squeeze until you get it into that box. And so it's very information dense. Sometimes I hear people tell me The Economist is tough just because there's a lot of content in there. And precisely because the content is 
complicated. We write about international affairs and advanced technologies and science and finance. The clarity of the style is at an absolute premium. We can't afford to also be obscure while the substance of the issue itself is complicated. How, for example, language changes. I mean, especially English, I think it's quite an adaptable language compared to Portuguese, for example, I would say. Does The Economist is very open to use new language or how does that work when new expressions come out or there's still more to on the traditional side of things? As the keeper of a style guide, you always have mm. to keep your mind open to the nature of change in language. And I'm also the language columnist, so I write about language change every couple of weeks in some form or fashion. And if you really get into language, you understand just everything is change. And as, as you say, I think English is one of the more innovative languages because it's a mix of roots from German and Romance languages and others. And as a result, we have to be open to change. But The Economist is never going to be known for kind of a, a you know, trying to be, we, we sometimes jokingly call it grandpa at the disco. Uh, <laughs> we're not trying to be where the cool kids are in terms of the latest slang and, and internet meme terminology because that would make us look a little bit silly. We take some subjects very, very seriously. But we have to be open to change. And so this edition of the guide introduces some new rulings that I think basically keep up with the changes in the English language. And to be honest with you, some of those don't always please all of our readers or even all of our journalists and editors. And uh, I, I can give you a few examples if you're interested. No, please, please. Well, uh, one of the ones that has made the most kind of fuss in-house and with readers was that uh, we have a new ruling. I'm also sort of the, the, the person that issues these new rulings internally on the use of data. If you know your Latin, data is a plural in Latin, and that's it, it's a, you know, it's got a plural ending. And, and the kids that had Latin back in school and are now our senior editors can't not see that Latin plural ending on data, meaning, you know, individual data points. But the fact is that data is being used more and more to describe a concept. You might say things like data is more important than physical inventory for many companies or that data is the new oil, the most important commodity in the world. And when we talk about the concept like that, it just sounds a little silly to say data are the new oil or data are more important than physical inventory. So there's times where singular data just seems to make so much more sense. And especially younger correspondents and colleagues of mine were kind of chafing at having to use plural data all the time. So a few months ago, well before the guide, I wrote a column around it and introduced a new rule in which we can allow plural data where we seem to be referring to a number of data points, as in a research study, or singular data when we're talking about the totality of it or as a concept. And so it gives a little bit of flexibility and allows I think a good thing, which is that writers can use their common sense and their feel for the style. If, if something sounds wrong, if data are the new oil just sounds weird, then there's something wrong with the rule and you have to open it up a little bit. At The Economist, do they have a good team of sub-editors as well? Because, I mean, it's a shame. I mean, so many magazines, they completely, you know, got rid of them, which is stupid. But I, I have a feeling you have a good one, right? Well, we have a great team. And what the role is at The Economist, we really don't have dedicated subs. We have section editors who both commission stories and are themselves subject matter experts usually. And they also are the front line of editing the copy, making it fit the space and, and applying the style and, and sorting out unclear passages and things like that. So this layer of editors, I think, is the real crown jewel of The Economist, because these are some really great people from very different walks of life and areas of expertise. But they are also themselves, you know, they're kind of subs, too. So it means they take the role of language guardians seriously, too. So I don't like to think of myself as a dictator imposing style on people. I like to kind of talk to my 
my colleagues and make sure that, you know, their, their concerns are being addressed, that we're keeping the style modern and, and adaptive, but that we don't rush into changes. I like that. One thing that I'm curious, I mean, here at Monaco, we do have a list. It's not exactly banned words, but words that we should avoid uh, using for whatever reason, like, for example, the word cozy. <laughs> do you have a similar kind of list of words there at The Economist? Yeah, there is a list of words that we discourage. And, and I, I guess you could call it a ban list. But in the new version of the style guide, I both try to cut that list down. So it's shorter than it was before because there's a temptation to ban ever more words and nothing ever comes off the ban list until you're banning larger and larger chunks of the vocabulary and you're left with fewer and fewer possibilities. And so instead, what I tried to do is what you might call principles over detailed rules. We have these old ideas about how you should use ordinary words rather than rare words, that you should use words in common parlance rather than words used only by experts, plain English rather than a foreignism, and so forth. And if you if you really get those concepts under your skin, then you don't need to ban quite so many words because it covers a lot of the, of the bad words, the words that we don't like. Business jargon that everybody hates, you know, cliches that have been used by far too many journalists before us. But rather than making an ever-expanding list, I try to sort of teach this idea in, in the book. There are narrative chapters about vocabulary choice, about phrasings and metaphors and imagery, and about editing yourself so that you you essentially end up with that same product at the end of the day, but you haven't done it by a, an extensive list of bans. Because I like to think of us as a liberal publication. We, we, like to, we like to say that we are. So we should also be, you know, have the courage of our convictions when we talk about language and say, rather than bans, these are principles, good guidelines to follow. And if you do, we think you'll get some good pros in the end. I like that because I do, I do think of The Economist as being kind of liberal and, and trying to make sense. I love especially the editorial pages. I think that's quite, that's a classic. Is, is, I mean, who, who is in charge of the editorial pages, actually? Because we're a small team, we really don't have a dedicated leader writing staff mm. and a sort of op-ed or editorial writing department. It's really the senior editors, the, the editor-in-chief herself, Sandy Mittenbettos, her deputies, and those section editors whom I mentioned earlier. They write the vast majority of leaders. But unusually, I think, think for The Economist, quite often a correspondent will write the leader that accompanies a piece of reporting. I, I wrote one last year on the Catholic Church and the abuse, sexual abuse scandals to go along with an extensive reported piece that I did with several colleagues. So it's not a sort of walled off garden of leader writing experts. Everybody is encouraged to come up with the ideas in their stories that might also lend themselves to a leader. And completely forgot here, but what's the currency that you guys use at The Economist? Because here in Monaco, we try to put everything into euros. Mm. But is it, is it euros or dollars? We translate everything that's not dollars into dollars on the first conversion uh -huh. so that, you know, if, if it comes up later, we don't have to retranslate the currency. And actually, more than half our readers, I'm not exactly sure the percentage today, but more than half are in the United States. So we're a very British publication in DNA. Our headquarters is here in London, but our readership base is in the U.S. with a big chunk in Britain, but also scattered around the world. So the dollar being the biggest global currency, it's the one that most of our readers will be able to quickly think in. That's amazing. And Lena, I mean, it's a very random question, but do you have favorite words to use? I mean, this is, I mean, there's so many words to choose. I'm sorry for the question, but I'm curious. That's okay. I, I actually have one sort of style rule where I'm a little bit of a traditionalist and I'm not always traditional, but I am on this one is I really like the word literally because if you deploy it in a really good literal sense, it can be quite a lot of fun. I, I even keep a list on my phone of times 
I've used it literal, literally, and it just made me smile. Like my son fell off a horse when riding, and then I told my mom he literally got right back in the saddle. You know, using a metaphor, but literally. And another uh, time, I finished a, a singing lesson, and uh, my teacher said, "Let's end on a high note." And I said,、uh, "Literally." So that's so delightful to me that it's the reason I don't like the sort of metaphorical extension all over the place of using literally just as an intensifier, like we literally walked a million miles, or it was literally hot as Hades, or whatever. That use just doesn't do anything. Fun and I like the traditional literally so much that I I say we should we should use it on our pages. Thank you very much, Lane and the Economist. Writing with style is out now. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpnmonaco.com. And meanwhile, you can always subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you, Manchu Man. Mayo Stripper. You've been listening to the stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. It's goodbye for me. A lady's not a diamond. Working after hours. Ripples on my chest. Never got a night's rest. A modern day jack. A jock with an act. Hey, Lolita, touch me, squeeze me. Ooh. 